This week on Excelsior Journeys, my guest is writer and pop culture historian Cassine Gaines. Cassine is the man behind the book E.T. The Ultimate Visual History, which was released last August as part of E.T.'s 40th anniversary. And he has also just released a book called When Broadway Was Black, all about the first successful all-black musical, Shuffle Along. We're going to be discussing these books as well as the other books that he has done, including books on the Back to the Future trilogy and on the and on Pee Wee's Playhouse. So, JLD, do the honors. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. So would you say that that's kind of like the lightning bolt moment for you? And that's you, why I moment? taught myself how to draw, was actually the Little Mermaid, drawing stills Life of Ariel. I've got better things to do tonight than so die. So jumped out of his chair and said, who the F is this? I remember walking out of the theater with him saying, I'm going to write home. I'm rather sense. impressed with your research. Rarely do people ask me about children in the corner. It doesn't have to too. be perfect. Just do it. You know, throw yeah. some spaghetti yeah. against the wall. See this if it This is sticks. George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys, part of the Once Upon a Podcast Network. My name is George Soroy, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for tuning in for almost 200 episodes. I am so excited that we're so close to this milestone, and I'm also excited that we're just a few weeks away from the May 21st event that is taking place at the Spine Indie Bookstore and Cafe right here in St. Louis on Arsenal Street. And it will be the premiere presentation of Excelsior, the audio journey, which is the full two hour version of the audio drama that was on Clubhouse on March 12th and March 19th. I am really excited for for this. I'm really excited to get some more some more ears onto onto this onto this production. It was a real dream come true to make it happen. And now I get to share it with all of you. And I'm really excited about that. I hope you're listening to all of the new shows on the Once Upon a Podcast Network. And I'm really excited that we're going to have another show joining our ranks in just the next week. And more details about that will be coming in the very near future. Now, for those of you who know me and know my shopping habits, when I go to any bookstore, one of the first places I go to, one of the first spots that I go to is the performing arts section. I am such a sucker for behind the scenes stories, for making of stories, all the stuff when it comes to film, television. My bookshelf is littered with all these different types of books. And I was so excited to see that this past August, another potential addition to the ranks here on my bookshelf. In fact, this particular one is going to be what I christen my new coffee table in my office once I get it. And that is that is E.T. The Ultimate Visual History by by author Cassine Gaines. And when I looked at the detail that he went to to create this this amazing looking looking book, I knew that this, not only did I have to have this book, but I also had to have Cassine on the show to talk about this. And it turns out that this is not the only book that Cassine has, has released. He has also, over the past decade plus, Cassine has released books on 
Pee-wee's Playhouse, The Dark Crystal, the Back to the Future trilogy, and A Christmas Story. And this past February, he also released the definitive take on the first successful all-black musical called Shuffle Along in a book called When Broadway Was Black. It came out this February. Definitely get it. And we have Kasim here to talk about all of this. It is my pleasure to introduce author Kasim Gaines. Kasim, how are you, sir? I am great. I sound so accomplished in your intro. My goodness, thank you so much. Introduction. <laughs> it's one. Of, it's one of my favorite things to do. I love. I love. Ta- I love to. And it's with when it comes to when it comes to my guests. I don't really have to talk them up. All I have to do is just remind them what they've done, and that's and that's the great thing. And that's a great thing about it. It's just like it's like you've already done like so much already, and you definitely deserve to have that kind of intro. So I am so thrilled to have you here. I'm I'm very grateful that you've accepted my invite to be here. Well, I appreciate the invite. Thank you. Absolutely. So so before we dive into basically your your history as an author. I'm curious to know a little bit more about the latest book that you've released, When Broadway Was Black. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So as you said, When Broadway Was Black is the story of the first all-Black Broadway show that was a success on Broadway. And that goes back to 1921. So it was the show called Shuffle Along. And what's interesting about it is, I guess, a couple of things. Number one is... Langston Hughes actually credits this show with kickstarting the Harlem Renaissance. It Mm. was right at the beginning of the 20s, and the show was such a success. I mean, it was quite literally the Hamilton of the 20s. It brought people from all over the world to New York to see the show. And what's sort of interesting about it is in 1921, they were coming out of a global pandemic. (laughs) They were coming out of a decimated economy. They were coming out of a period where Broadway was dark for a long period of time. And so this show really helped bring back the theater scene Mm -hmm. in New York City. Josephine Baker was actually a part of the cast of this show. She was only 16 years old. So this is her first professional stage credit. She was just a member of the chorus. The song, I'm Just Wild About Harry, is from Mm -hmm. this show. No kidding. Oh, yes. wow. And and so part of the exciting thing about this book is there are so many entry points where people might know parts of this show, but most people have never actually heard of the show itself. Mm-hmm. And so the book is telling the history of the show, but also kind of looking at what transpired over the last century to mm-hmm. sort of have the the fruit of this tree be remembered, but not the tree itself. And so it's it's kind of exciting, deep dive of kind of untold hidden figures type history. It almost sounds like this, this was one of the major factors responsible for what they refer to as the roaring twenties, because like that was, that was such a, you know, a period of, I guess you say rowdiness, like, and where everyone was just like, excited to be back out there again, to be able to rejoin civilization. And there's so much celebration going on. Obviously in 1929, the celebration stopped, (laughs) but kind of came to a a sudden halt. But it sounds like this show was a primary factor 
to kind of get everything going again. Yeah, it really coincided with the rise of even like the flapper as a figure. Prohibition was brand new when this show debuted. And so parties kind of were underground and they went until, you know, three, four o'clock in the morning and Mm -hmm. uh, the nightlife really kind of picked up. And in fact, to your point, they realized that so many people were enjoying the nightlife that they scrapped their Wednesday matinee performance, which is when still Broadway typically has a matinee on Wednesdays. And they added instead a midnight matinee on Wednesday because people just wanted to see the show at night and other Broadway performers wanted to come see the show. So it really was a quite staggering show. It ran for 504 performances, which even certainly in our current climate where Broadway is kind of struggling to come back, um, Mm -hmm. 504 performances is unusual. And it certainly was unusual back in 1921 um, mm-hmm. and, and I think the other thing that's really important is while it was an all black show, that's not just the actors, that's the writers, it's the producers. They owned the show as well. So oh, these, wow. these artists became incredibly wealthy as a mm-hmm. result of this show, which was quite unusual. And did, what, did it wind up being like all black investors as well? Were they able to, to do that or is it? Yes, it was it was a 50-50 sort of 50-50 split. So they had they had two white investors and then the four creators were co-investors. So they split it oh, nice. kind of okay. down the middle, which was really unusual for the time period. Yeah. Man, and and it almost sounds like the the idea behind making it a, a midnight show was almost like a precursor to what we would have decades later with the midnight movies. Yeah. Yeah. Midnight movies and, and certainly like a, a Rocky horror, like mm-hmm. just kind yeah. of meeting the audience where they were. And I, but I, I think your point about it coinciding with the, the rise of the roaring twenties is an important one because the show changed what a musical sounds like before shuffle mm-hmm. along. It was really kind of a European kind of operetta style of musical And after Shuffle Along, you really kind of got jazz and syncopation and even big tap dance numbers. You had a women's Mm -hmm. dancing chorus for the first time ever. Um, Really a groundbreaking show. And, And I think what's exciting about the book, When Broadway Was Black, is it's just kind of, again, like Hidden Figures, you don't have to be a scientist or into NASA to sort of go along for this journey. You don't have to be a Broadway nerd like Mm -hmm. myself (laughs) to kind of (laughs) be into this story. It's just sort of an interesting American tale of perseverance and struggle, certainly, because these were Black artists sort of forging a path at a time where it's pre the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of sort of racial strife as well, but it's, it's a really triumphant, exciting story that I'm I'm glad that people are enjoying checking out. That's that's tremendous. And it sounds like it should be a movie on its own as as well. Um because it sounds like it's something that it's over a hundred years old now. So mm-hmm. it definitely owes quite a bit to it definitely owes like uh, it, it it definitely should be something that that is more immortalized. And it seems like your book could be 
the first step in that. Yeah, I I like that idea. Let's get Hollywood yeah. on the phone. I like that idea. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> so I'm curious to know, since you said that you are a theater nerd as well, and I'm it's safe to say, I would also say a movie nerd, correct? Yes. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I'm just a nerd, period. Then you can put all the subcategories. <laughs> <laughs> but it's always fun to put in those subcategories because we always have to let the world know what we are nerds about. Right. So that way, so that way the right person can ask, oh, really? How so? Well, right. let me tell you. <laughs> the sports question. I'm not a sports nerd. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> right. <laughs> so what I love to hear about on the show is what I like to call the lightning bolt moment. And that's that moment in time when someone experiences something, hears something, meets someone, see something, whatever. And it convinces them that this is what I should be doing. This is the path I want to be on. This is the kind of life I want to be. This is the kind of life I want to lead. So I'm curious to know for you, what was it about movies and pop culture in general that made you want to kind of get into the inner workings to see more about how things, how things are made rather than as well as celebrating the, the thing itself. Cause I know that like with me, I tend to watch a lot more of the special features of a DVD more than the DVD itself. I love knowing all the behind the scenes machinations that go into something and I tend to really want to watch that more often than the movie or show itself. So is that the same thing with you? Yeah. I mean, you hit the nail on the head and I, I miss DVD special features. I mean, I still have a unholy collection of, of, of DVDs. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so me too. Me too. Um, I will never, I will never part with my physical media. Like yeah. It's, it's, but I, I can't agree with you more. And but I, I can tell you, I have, kind of two moments that really stick out to me. Mm-hmm. One is I remember when I was a kid, one of the very first pieces of physical media that I remember getting was a VHS of the wizard of Oz. And I was, I've always nice. been the wizard of Oz. And I remember though, seeing on, I don't know if it was AMC or Turner classic movies or something, but when I was a really young kid, they had some introduction to mm-hmm. the wizard of Oz and they explained the special effect when it goes from black and white or sepia to color mm-hmm. explain yeah. how we did that shot and so for anyone who's listening who doesn't know that one shot is actually entirely in color the set mm-hmm. is painted sepia judy garland has a body double who's wearing sepia colored stockings and she's wearing a sepia colored dress and her wig and the entire shot is in color you never see dorothy's face in the beginning of that shot so dorothy walks into the frame she opens up the door you see you see munchkin land through the other side in color and dorothy walks completely out of the frame just for a moment just Mm -hmm. for a moment and then judy garland in her seat in her gingham dress walks back into the frame and through into chicken land. And I, when I still to this day, when I see that you can't tell that it's a body double, you certainly can't tell that the entire shot is in color. And I just remember as a kid wanting to tell my parents, my cousins, my friend, like, look at this. this." (laughs) It was amazing. It's like you discovered a magic trick. It was a magic trick. And I think I knew even as a kid in the eighties, I think I knew that 
wow, this movie is from 1939. Like if they were, yeah. a, they had this sophistication at that time, what amazing things they can do. Mm-hmm. We grew up, I, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that we're about the same age. Growing up in the 80s, yeah. I we had such a, a great period of puppetry and whether it was Little Shop of Horrors or E.T. or Pee-wee's Playhouse or The Muppets, obviously. We just yeah. had Alf you know, on T. Gremlin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just feel like we, we grew up at such a time where there was such creativity, practical creativity, yeah. that it, it couldn't help but sort of, or at least for me, it couldn't help but sort of inspire me. But the other thing that I, I want to mention really quickly is I remember – having two books as a kid. One was a book called The Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Scott Zacree. And the other was a book called, I believe called Our Gang, The Life and Times of the Little Rascals by Leonard Maltin. Oh, wow. And they were two books that really wrote about these film and television series in such detail but also in a way that was sort of like exciting storytelling about the behind the scenes of of mm-hmm. these product products projects that i i really think those two books more than anything triggered something in me to say it's one thing to kind of know how these things were done or know the behind the scenes stories and it's another thing to be able to document and write these things in a way that's exciting and just like a good book. And yeah. so I've, I've had the the pleasure of actually speaking to Leonard Maltin and speaking to Mark Scott Zacree as well and being able to kind of give them those accolades. But I really think that those books were my first two introductions to writing or reading rather about yeah. pop culture in a way that made me kind of say like, this would be fun to do. Yeah, it's it's like, it's almost like you decide you're going to take it upon yourself to be like a pop culture historian. Yeah. Really. Like the and those those types of people like that's that's something that we all need. We need the to have all this stuff documented because it really is part of our history. People tend to kind of downgrade it because all it is is entertainment, but at the same time entertainment is what people go to when they need something, when they, when they need to escape from reality, when they need to get either, um, either identify with what they're dealing with or take a break from what they're dealing with. It's what everyone went to during the pandemic. And it's, and it's something that, that too many people just really take for granted. So I'm, I'm thrilled to know that that kind of, set you on that path. And so which, so what was the, what was the first project that you decided to tackle? The first book that I wrote was Inside Pee-wee's Playhouse. And that was back in, the book came out in 2011, but I started working on it in 2009, which is wow, really nuts. I, I can't believe it's such a long time ago. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when you when you said in your intro that like over my decade plus, I was like, oh my goodness, it has been a decade plus. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I kept an eye on those dates, and like it was, and as I was go- looking through them and everything, I seeing like, okay, so that came out in 2011. Back to the Future came out, I think, 2015. Correct. Right, right. Which is pretty ideal <laughs> right there. <laughs> and then, and the Dark Crystal book is out and the Christmas story book is out. It's like, 
why have I not seen this guy before? Like this sounds, this sounds fabulous. So I'm playing catch up like on, on, on your work and I'm really excited to do so. Um, but I also saw that the Pee Wee's Playhouse book is out of print. So I'm, are there plans to kind of get that going again? Are you thinking about maybe going back and making like an updated edition of it or anything? Yeah, the Pee-wee book, the Pee-wee book will never die in my in my view. Nice. It's, it's an interesting sort of thing because the book the book is so, I mean, I don't say so old at this point, but it is it is quite old and it's a beautiful uh book with like over 250 photographs and mm-hmm. in color and it's it's a really kind of staggering beautiful thing and I think right now we it's it's I think they're they're trying to wait out the supply chain a little bit. I mean, so they can yeah. do some more, but it, yeah, it'll definitely be back in stock. But if for anyone who's listening who's interested in the Pee Wee book, there are still copies available through my website. So if you go to CassineGaines.com, you can pick up a signed copy of the Pee Wee book. They're they're not they're not completely gone. You can also get it. Oh, good. Time. Yeah. Good, good. I'm glad to hear that because my my wife is a is a huge like Pee Wee's Playhouse junkie. So that's I think her mom still has the Pee the Pee Wee action figure. Oh um, my! Goodness. So yeah, she's got and you know, like yeah, she's got actually like from what I remember a bunch of the different action figures from the show. I so, was at a con once and I so regretted it. There was someone that had a Pee Wee talking doll, a pull string doll, mm-hmm. but it actually spoke it still spoke and i i don't know anyone who had one of these dolls and like over a million were sold so lots of people have but they they don't work i mean they're really like they just didn't hold up over the years but this one still functioned and it wasn't even that expensive it was maybe like a hundred bucks or something and i i I don't know why like i hemmed and hawed and i was like oh maybe i'll go back and pick it up and i went back to pick it up about like an hour later and it was gone i was like oh oh, man it's it's my little regret (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but at the same, yeah, yeah, because a lot of those, a lot of those kind of kind of dolls, like you pull the string, just like, oh, you want more? Right. It was in the box. I mean, it was a beautiful. It was beautiful, but oh, wow. someone else, is, someone else is enjoying it. I hope. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so was the Pee Wee Herman book? Was there? Did you get cooperation at all from Paul Rubens and company? No, I did not. And that was sort of an interesting thing for me. And and, and in a weird sort of way, I was glad that I had that experience. I don't think that I, I I certainly didn't appreciate it in real time, but Paul Rubin did not participate and was kind of, I I would say, actively not participating, to put it it, um, mildly. But what what was kind of crazy is, I got so much participation from so many other people that were a part of the show. And so many people said, thank you for writing this. Thank you for documenting what we did. Paul Rubens at the time said that he was sort of planning on writing his own book. And so he wasn't going to participate in my book and that I certainly understood. But also I started working on that book in 2009 and there still isn't a book from Paul Rubens. And I'm not Mm. saying that. I'm not saying that he won't write one, but I'm just yeah. saying I I think there's also something fascinating about someone who is taking a objective view at what happened in a history. I think yeah. a lot of people look at books that are unauthorized or books where the main subject didn't have didn't participate and say well that that must be 
salacious or that must be false or why didn't the main subject participate? Mm-hmm. And the, the kind of interesting thing is, I, I think most of the time, like that's kind of like what journalism is, right? Like, you don't always have you don't always have your subject participate, and also a memoir or autobiography isn't necessarily more factually accurate just because the person <laughs> just because the person who was there right. wrote it. So I I really have been very pleased with the reaction to the Pee-wee book because it's an incredibly not just not just fair book, but it's it's a book that really celebrates the genius of that show and the genius of just that period of time in the eighties mm-hmm. where such a a unique character drove so much of the children's entertainment and kind of like pop culture landscape. And uh, it was very well received. It was actually an award-winning book, which was was as well. And so, yeah, it would have been nice to have Paul Rubin's participation, but it also, I think, was a good lesson for me first time out that if someone doesn't want to participate, that doesn't mean that the book should necessarily stop. And not only that, but it also kind of lends an additional element of likeness to Pee-wee Herman, Pee-wee's Playhouse and Pee-wee Herman himself, because he was always like, I mean, he says in, in Pee-wee's Big Adventure, I'm a loner, Dottie, a rebel. So you have, so you have that sort of kind of feel, which matches what he is. He is someone who is outside the spectrum. Like just looking at his earliest shows, like he's very much like, askew from what is typically accepted of children's entertainment and and then like to and that show the show itself Pee Wee's Playhouse had that element as well of rebellion so it's only right that that the book should be unauthorized because you know what does that mean it's like it means you got approval from the rebel who did not seek approval (laughs) when he, when he went to to do what he did. So this is just kind of keeping in with what, with what the, with what the character and the movie and the legacy of Pee Wee is all about. Well, and it's, it's interesting because I've I've now done, boy, boy, now I think about it, maybe about half the books that I've done have been quote unquote unauthorized and the Mm -hmm. other half have been authorized. And, and I will tell you I think the the best sort of like the best of both worlds experience that I had was on my Back to the Future book. We don't mm-hmm. need rope because yeah. while it wasn't officially authorized by Universal, I actually like bizarrely Universal was very much so involved with that book. They helped me with photos, even though they didn't. It wasn't a Universal book, yeah. but also like everyone associated with the movie that I could get a hold of participated. So oh, Bob, Bob Gale, Christopher Lloyd, Leah Thompson, Huey Lewis, like I, I, the list, the list really goes on. The only person that I really wish I could have gotten and couldn't was, was Michael. And that was, yeah. because he was actually no one. I mean, I shouldn't say no one, but a few people kind of remember that he had this show, the Michael J Fox show for, I think it was only a one season sort of situation. But at the time that, that I was writing the book, he was filming the show and oh, wow. they they agreed to kind of get a, an interview on the books once they stopped filming. And right when they stopped filming, the show had gotten canceled. And then oh. he was sort of not doing interviews because the show had just been canceled and that whole thing. And so it wasn't, it wasn't for lack of 
it was more lack of timing. Yeah. Uh, if only we had DeLorean, we could do it all over again. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> um, and just go back 10 minutes early. That always right, does right, it. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't they go back earlier? What a, what a nutty decision. Uh, but, yeah, but, just go um, back like 20 minutes or something. Like that. Why do you have to sprint to, to, get, o- to get over there? It's it like give yourself a little bit of time. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but that was, that was really the best of both worlds because I had – Bob Gale back checked the book and he was a real oh, amazing nice. ally, amazing ally. Like that book could not have happened without Bob Gale. Yeah. And, but, but still, because it wasn't a universal book, there were definitely things in the book that I don't, I think like the studio wouldn't necessarily have let go through if it was their mm. book. So it was, so it was kind of exciting to have, to, to be able to kind of walk that line. And I, I think what has, done me well over the years is I've always been fair to everyone and all of these properties. And of course I approach these things as a fan. I am not, that's not to say that they're all like gushy books, but I appreciate the artistry behind all of these things. And I'm not certainly not out to, to get anyone or air anyone's dirty laundry or anything like that. So I, I think the work sort of speaks for itself, and that's what's enabled me to be asked to do some of these officially licensed books, like the Dark Crystal book, which I did for the Jim Henson Company, which was mm-hmm. exciting and amazing. And then having the the amazing honor and opportunity to do E.T. the Extraterrestrial for Amblin. And so for that one, I spoke with Steven Spielberg, and Drew Barrymore did the foreword to the book, and had a... a, a ridiculously wonderful and lengthy conversation with Kathy Kennedy and everyone, everyone associated with, I spoke to John Williams right after he was on the scoring stage for, I think it was the rise of Skywalker. That was oh, wow. So in like, he was, I mean, he was John Williams. He was, he was amazing. And he was <laughs> amazing. Just like everyone else was amazing. I, the, the, I think the the best sort of thing that I can say about that entire interview process on the ET book was Drew Barrymore is exactly the person she is on TV. Yeah. <laughs> I mean she is there is no pretending. She is yeah. the exact same way upon meeting her it was mm-hmm. like we were long lost friends. It was the first time I ever met uh-huh. her. I never spoke to her and she was like so warm and gentle and like so gracious and i was just like wow like you are like the real deal <laughs> mm-hmm. that's um, great that's that's yeah. so great i'm 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 so glad to hear that too cuz it's it's always so you're always thinking that there's always that chance that they could be just putting like very likely putting on an act and i'm glad to hear that 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 wasn't the case with her yeah, no, she she was delightful. And I think with E.T. in particular, I think everyone, even including Steven Spielberg, mm-hmm. still is, I think, a little bit shocked and surprised that after 40 years, everyone is still interested in E.T. <laughs> They're very proud. Everyone was very proud of the movie. But mm-hmm. I think there was still kind of a little bit of like, this movie should not have become the juggernaut that it that it became. And I there they all kind of have their different theories as to why that was, but I think they they still don't know. Like if you if you if they had to try and reproduce that today, 
Yeah. They don't even know kind of what they did to kind of strike lightning like that. Yeah. Now, now, now my, I remember hearing the story years back that John Williams basically had the projector turned off when he was, when he was conducting the, when he was conducting the finale of the mm-hmm. movie. And then Spielberg was so taken by it that he basically edited the finale around the music. Is that true? Yeah, that is true. That oh. last segment of the of the score is maybe about 17 or so continuous minutes of music and yeah. the thing the thing about ET is Spielberg knew because the movie was a really small film. I don't know mm-hmm. how how recently you've watched it or or anyone listening has watched it. But when you go back and look at it, it really is a very intimate film that the cast is tiny. Tiny Obviously the, 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 the puppet or the animatronic, like any animatronic has had its limitations in terms of what it could do. And so they had to use a lot of clever trickery in filmmaking to make it work. And so Spielberg knew that the, the emotional heft of, that final sequence, the music was going to have to help. He, yeah. was, he was not not shy about the reality of that. Right. And so because he was so focused on the music or knew that the music was going to be so integral, he did have the projector turned off and said, just play the music in the way that seems like it, it brings out the most emotion in the music. And then I'll go back in with my editor and we'll cut it around the music. And... <sighs> And it, yeah, so it's best decision he could have made. I mean, like I, I saw, I, I, w- I was, I went to a concert with my wife in 2006. John Williams was there in New York City. This is during the time that we lived there. And it was at Lincoln Center and it was a tribute to both John Williams and Bernard Herman. Oh, and wow. so the first act was all Williams conducting to Bernard Herman music and he had Martin Scorsese out to introduce different segments of it. So it was fascinating. This was the best night ever. <laughs> it really was. So, and, and the thing is like, that was just act two, act one, then intermission comes on and then he comes, Maestro Williams comes back out and he starts conducting and the strings are just doing like this very low thing. And all of a sudden you just hear, Da-da. And every and there's like this energy that just ripples through like the whole audience as he goes into the full theme from Jaws, and then Steven Spielberg comes out. And, oh wow! Yeah, and he talks and he's talking about different collaborations that he did with John, and so it starts off with a suite from Close Encounters, hmm. and it's a beautiful, sweeping, epic piece and everything. And at the end of it, I'm getting myself, I'm getting choked up watch mm-hmm. listening to this i'm just like i know he's going to play et i'm going to be a mess when that happens and sure enough like a few pieces later because he did another piece from jaws which to me was like my only my only minus on the whole night it was like if you're doing a spielberg williams collaboration thing then put in a piece from jurassic park mm-hmm. you know, like then put put in welcome to the island like mm-hmm. that would have been fabulous but then he did a piece from indiana jones and the last crusade and then the theme from Schindler's List. And then with the with the movie on a big screen, oh, wow. he's conducting the last 15, 18 minutes or so of E.T. And sure enough, as soon as that ship lands, hmm. I am bawling. I am an absolute bawling mess 
what taking all of this in and so is everyone else in in at the in in the place and that was supposed to be the finale then he comes out does a couple more a couple more pieces as an encore he does a piece from Munich and then says that you might I'm I'm going to play this one because it might be a little bit by the time you get home it might be a little bit late for you to hear this live and he plays a theme the NBC nightly news and so now all of a sudden everyone is laughing it was just like it's so powerful his his music and just being there and everything having the whole experience was just amazing and then after all that he says i understand george lucas isn't here tonight but i don't think he'll mind and then he turns around overture to star wars and that's what and that's what wraps up the whole thing like it it was it was by far the greatest concert I've ever been to and one of the best experiences of my life. And just like, and knowing that the story that I had heard about, about how he had the projector shut off, knowing that that's true is that's, that's an amazing feeling. And it totally validates how I was feeling in that theater when, when that was happening. So that's, that's wonderful. I'm so glad to know that, that that was a real thing, that that's not just like a typical Hollywood legend that it really happened. Yeah. John Williams is, is a a legend for sure. And, and there's something about that last sequence in ET where even a couple months ago, I was at a screening of ET and I was going to talk afterwards. And I, I tend to like, like you might expect, like not, not sit there and watch the whole movie. I went and I got a bite to eat and I came back and I was like, Oh, I'll come back 15 minutes for the movie ends. And I, even without having seen the rest of the movie mm-hmm. and just kind of waiting to go up there, I start crying as I'm yeah. watching the last 15 minutes mm-hmm. so many times. And I, um, and, and so then the, the movie ends and they didn't roll the whole credits, unfortunately. So that as yeah. soon as the movie ends, they like kind of like call like bring up the lights and they call me up and I've got and I'm wiping away tears. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh my goodness, this is so embarrassing. But it's it's something about and I think what what is great about ET is they filmed that movie for the most part, not a hundred percent, but for the most part chronologically. Mm-hmm. So the kids actually when they're saying goodbye to et um that was the very end for rob mcnaughton and drew barrymore like that was their last thing they shot henry oh wow uh, henry actually had uh, like another few days because they shot some of the material actually that's not robert actually had another couple days too because they shot some in the redwoods okay very very end Mm -hmm. but like for drew that's drew's last day of filming um, so those tears are real yeah, those tears are that's D Wallace's last day of filming. Like that you're mm. seeing the the day that they wrapped for most of the cast. And so it's it's hard because those emotions like where is where is the line between reality and fantasy yeah. in that in that moment? And I think for me the unsung hero of that finale is a, a beautiful performer named Caprice Rothy who is the mime artist who's playing E.T.'s hands. Oh, wow. Because 
those hands are are live. Those aren't the 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 puppet's hands. Those aren't the animatronics' hands. So when you see ET go in for that hug to Elliot, and the, the fingers are just sort of like almost like massaging his back, like just reaching in, reaching in for that hug. It it feels so otherworldly, but it also feels so incredibly human and warm. And and again, that goes back to movie magic, right? Because yeah. we never see the artist who is playing E.T.'s hands, but it really helps to sell, I think, that last sequence. And some of the some of the times you're seeing the hands, um, certainly in a wide shot or medium shot, it is the animatronic, but sometimes it's it's live and or human. And yeah. it just it just really helps to sell it. Oh, damn it, you got me crying again. <laughs> it's, it's beautiful. It's really, it really oh. beautiful. And it, it's one of those things where I I don't know how anyone can watch that film and not think about... Uh, look, every, everyone has, has lost someone, and that doesn't mean that they necessarily have to have passed on, but everyone has a friend that, that they were close with at some point that they don't keep up with anymore or mm-hmm. a family member they haven't seen in a long time. or And I, I think there's something about that kind of love and relationship and that going away that everyone can relate to. And that goodbye sequence is so simple, but yeah. it's also so beautiful and universal that it just, it just gets me. Yeah. It it really, it really does, man. I am so excited to dive into this whole, this whole story. And when the book was finished and you were able to actually like hold it in your hands and everything after how many years did it, did it take to put this book together? Well, that's a, that's a funny question. You don't even, you don't even know how, how funny of a question that is because the book, I started working on it, I think in 2000, 2018, I want to say. And oh, wow. the book was supposed to come out in 2019 and then they pushed it to 2020 and then 2020 happened yeah and then, and then when <laughs> 2020 happened they kind of pushed it a little bit indefinitely and then when the pandemic didn't last three weeks or wasn't over by easter as we were all promised I then see. it turned into let's just hold it for the 40th anniversary so which as, was smart that was, yeah, that was a great way to do it you know it that was, was, it was kind yeah. of wonderful but so this book I sort of had been working on it for about three or four years, but it wasn't continuously. There were lots of like starts and stops over the, over the way. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, kudos to them to, for saying like, Ooh, this is actually, this is actually something to release on the 40 for the 40th anniversary. That's First smart. People at Amblin, they, I think, I think they're going to be, I think they, I think they know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think so. I think they, <laughs> I think they're going to be all right. Yeah. <laughs> what, when, when it was finished and you were able to hold it in your hands and everything and, and get it out there in the world, did you hear back from anyone who had collaborated with you on this? Did you hear back from, say Steven Spielberg or Drew Barrymore or anyone like that? I did. And I believe it or not, the very first person that outside of my publisher, the very first person that I got a reaction from Mm -hmm. was actually Drew. I was, I was on the phone with Drew 
as Drew was looking at the book for the first time. And she was the first person outside of the people at the publisher who was even seeing the book and and listening to her turn the pages and say, Oh my God, I haven't seen that before. Oh my gosh. How did you get that? Like she, she was like, that was, I think one of the coolest moments in my entire like writing career was listening to her enjoy this almost as a fan, frankly, that was really cool. And I, Robert McNaughton, who plays Michael in the film, like he is someone Mm -hmm. that I keep up with and he was really instrumental. And so I, I spoke with him about the book and he, he loved it and he bought copies for friends and family and yeah, everyone, I think what's, what's the coolest thing about a book like this is, and I, I say this seriously is no one has, everyone's perspective on the making of this film. Like, even if you are Steven Spielberg, Steven doesn't necessarily know what it was like for Henry Thomas filming this film. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. everyone, no matter who you were or who you are, has something to learn about the making of E.T. from this book. I did all the interviews, so I have everyone's kind of story, but then they get to sort of enjoy it. And and this film that they obviously have been acquainted with for 40 years, they even get to experience it in a new way. And I I think another piece of feedback that I really loved and and treasure was on my Back to the Future book where Bob Gale, after he read it, said to me, for a long time, people have told me that I'm a part of cinema history and I never really felt that way until I read your book. Wow! And and I talk I, about I, validating, like that's... yeah. And I I think that that is sort of the the power of of books like these because, as you said before, people don't always see film and television as high art. They mm-hmm. especially if you're if these are popcorn films it's not taxi driver it's not it's not something like right. that and i think to just sort of reestablish or remind people of the importance of these stories and these properties is a kind of a, a cool thing that i get to do yeah and yeah and definitely movies like taxi driver deserve all the accolades that they get and their placement in, in film history that they get but at the same time like when i want to put on something that I know is something that I can be comfortable watching, that I can really enjoy watching, that I can just lose myself in no matter how many times I see it. I'm going to put on movies like E.T. I'm going to put on movies like to back, like the Back to the Future trilogy, all three of them. And that's those sort of movies really deserve the sort of this sort of treatment that you're that you're giving them. And so there's something that I hope This is, I hope there's a lot more to tell from you. So I have to ask, are there any ones, now that you've gotten these out, you've gotten books on Back to the Future, The Dark Crystal, A Christmas Story, Pee-wee's Playhouse, you have this one with E.T. Are are there any certain specific movies that you're kind of like looking back on and just like, ooh, I would love to dive into that one? Yes. 
<laughs> yeah, there's there's tons of things that I that I love and I would love to write about, and um, I think it's just a a matter of time. I'm gonna I'm gonna go as quickly as I can through. <laughs> so we're so we're gonna keep so we're gonna keep the list itself secret. Yeah, we're gonna keep the list itself secret. But but I think I think my 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 wheelhouse is I'm just always on the on the hunt for fun and interesting stories. So even yeah. like the the Broadway one is outside of if you look like I've gone from from Pee-wee's Playhouse to a, a black Broadway show from 1921 so it's been kind of an interesting trajectory but to me the common thread that they all have is they're just interesting stories yeah. and I think that they all say something kind of interesting about the time period that these works came out in. And so who knows? Look, maybe, I, I mean, I, there's the sky's the limit, I think. Yeah. And I'm, I'm excited to continue to tell these stories as long as, as long as they keep letting me tell them. Are there any specific ones that you feel that, that they've already, that it's their stories have already been told and you feel like, well, I would just be adding on to like a bit, a, a high list. So I'm just going to look at. Yeah. That's- said. Yeah, so so a great example is I really love the Planet of the Apes films. Oh, um, great films! And I love I love the new films. I actually think are really well done. But those those first five from the the sixties and seventies, I they endure. I, yeah, and I I would love in in another world, right? In another world, I would love to write a book on the Planet of the Apes films. In another world, I would love to write a book on the Twilight Zone. I think those are two fascinating, exciting things. But there are so many books on the Twilight Zone and there are so many books on Planet of the Apes that I don't I don't know how much I would have to add. Um mm-hmm. but I though if I guess I guess another way of asking your question I think is like are there are there properties that like I wish I had gotten to first? <laughs> yeah. I think Planet of the Apes and, and The Twilight Zone are probably books that I are probably properties that I I wish I could have gotten my hands on, but I'm glad that someone else did. And also the books on I have a, a great big book on the making of Planet of the Apes that was written by the late great J.W. Rinsler, who just passed away a couple of years ago. Oh, and, and he and it, it's a fascinating, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful book, and you should pick it up. Yeah, yeah, I I. Yeah, yeah, J.W. Rinsler. Wow, talk about going into going into serious detail on on, on that's on their subjects. Like that's that's incredible. So I yeah I I would definitely recommend picking that up as well. So I yeah I'm like I said like I am just like an absolute sucker for for these kinds of books. And say there's someone else who wants to dive into these kinds of books. What would you recommend is like the first step that they would do to kind of get going on there? To to dive in in writing or to dive in in reading? Di- I'll dive into being the historian oh, you know, yeah. that you are, like to 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 basically kind of be able to go into these kinds of details that you did. Yeah, I think I think the the best bit of advice I could give is you have to remember that all of these properties are made by people. Yeah, you're you're never writing about a film or a TV show or a musical or whatever, you're always writing about the people that did these things. Mm-hmm. Before 
before there was E.T., there was little Steven Spielberg as a kid who went out and looked up at the stars with his father and his father would read him science fiction magazines. And that's what kind of sparked his interest in life beyond the stars. Mm -hmm. And as long as you remember that you're telling the story of that kid who grew up to be in a position to do close encounters and then ultimately ET you're, you're just going to start in a, I think in a better place. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, so I think that's, that's the best piece of advice that I could give. Always look into the people, follow the people, follow the humanity, follow the characters. Cause that's, that's, I think what's universal in all stories, Mm -hmm. all the things that we're thinking about, that we've been talking about all have really interesting characters. Pee Wee Herman is an interesting character. E.T. and mm-hmm. Ellie and Gertie, they're interesting characters. And so follow the people. I love that. I love that. And so where can my listeners find you on social media? So I am everywhere on social media at Ains. <laughs> so that's C-A-S-E-E-N-G-A-I-N-E-S. You can just look me up or Google me. I'm the only one, I promise. And, um, and my books are wherever books are sold. Support your local bookstores. Um, mm-hmm. But if you want signed copies, they are at CassimeGaines.com. And if you're looking for Inside Pee Wee's Playhouse, that might be your your best bet is to pick it up at CassimeGaines.com. Fabulous. And just like what Teen Games was talking about, it is all about the people and that can be that can be prescribed to every bit of writing that all that all of you are doing and that's the one thing to remember is that at the end of the day like all of the technology all of the stories that that are out there all of the the different moments that remain frozen in time that we all remember and we all cherish it all goes back to the people who came up with those ideas in the first place. So focus on the people, just like what Cassine was talking about, because those people are the ones that have given us so much that has endured. And Cassine has done his part to ensure that that their that their memories, that their legacies endure throughout the years as well. So definitely pick up your copies of Cassine's books. And for Cassine Gaines, this is George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward. And I will see you next week. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Excelsior Journeys. I hope it was both inspiring and entertaining. Special thanks to Zach Comtois for providing new music for the intro and outro. Please take a moment to leave a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe to your platform of choice by going to he'sgotit.com slash podcasts. While there, you can also fill out the application to be a guest, inquire about sponsorship opportunities, and click on the Buy Me a Coffee link if you wish to give your support to the show. All interaction is very much appreciated. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion for the show, please direct it to george at he'sgotit.com. 